0: Tonight, we're going to be looking at this issue of suffering, and particularly, how could a good and all-powerful God that Christians claim to believe in, how can that be true, how can that be plausible in light of all of the tremendous suffering in our world? Uh, I'm sure you've heard this uh, thought, maybe. uh, well, I'm sure you've had this thought yourself, Uh, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, Uh, I think this is an issue that every one of us has to um, wrestle with and reckon with. Now, we're going to look tonight at John chapter 11. I thought we would go ahead and read that story, and then I'm going to say a a little bit about a couple other approaches to this question, and then we're going to dig into the details of the story in John chapter 11, which I think hits on most of the important points in the Christian response uh, to this objection. So if you would follow with me, I'm going to read chapter 11 of John's Gospel. This is God's Word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said... This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's quite a non-secular, isn't it? Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I love the old King James, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) My kids used to love when we'd read that that story. Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. they made plans to put him to death. Here ends the reading of God's word. So as I said, the, um, the problem, briefly stated, is how could a good God, an all-powerful good God, allow suffering? And I have to say, for many people, this is not just a philosophical, theoretical, abstract problem, it's an intensely personal one. They've been left broken by their own suffering, people close to them suffering, and the suffering of the world. We're more aware of the suffering of the world today than we ever have been in human history. And that has a weight to bear. And we must never suggest that the Christian solution to the problem of evil explains it away so that evil and suffering no longer hurts. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 5, verse 20, says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And there are some Christians, particularly uh, from my own tribe, the Reformed uh, tradition, who have such a high view of God's sovereignty that at times you wonder if they're saying, because God is sovereign, evil isn't really evil, it's good in disguise. So you must never say that. The scripture clearly cautions us against confusing those categories. And God's sovereignty does not eliminate good and evil as real categories. We need to take evil and suffering seriously and not offer silly, pat answers. But we can say something, at least theoretically. Now, you remember I said at the beginning of this series, for these various objections, there's always a personal aspect and a theoretical or philosophical uh, uh, aspect. And for some of them, the philosophical is more weighty and for some the personal is more weighty. Uh, For this one, it's a little of both. And so we need to not ignore the philosophical. I'll say something about that a little bit and then we'll dig back into that story. What can we say about the theoretical objection? That if God is good and God is sovereign, how then can you explain evil and suffering? Tim Keller made this point in his book, uh, Reason, Not Reason for God, but um, Making Sense of God. An excellent book, by the way. He said, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise. <laughs> Namely, that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be Pointless. This reasoning is of course fallacious. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. We see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism and enormous faith in one's own cognitive facilities. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. If you have a God, listen to this, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. You have to at least be open to that possibility. Now C.S. Lewis, many of you heard of him, actually came to a similar uh, realization. This is before he was a Christian, and he was uh, sort of holding up one of the main reasons that he wasn't coming to Christianity was this argument about suffering and evil and God. Here's what he said. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. What's he saying? He's saying the only basis to say something is unjust is if you have some idea of justice that has to be rooted in something. And if you believe that everything exists is a matter of time plus chance plus matter, then you can have no sense of right and wrong. Everything just is. You often see people that deny God capitalize nature. It's fascinating how often this happens, and people begin to think that the universe has a moral bent to it, but without God, if it really is just a matter of time plus chance plus matter with no purpose what all behind it, then the idea that things are unjust is really just a thinly veiled way of saying, I don't like it. But you can't say it's unjust. That's what Lewis came to understand. So while there are people who would say, I can't believe in God because of suffering, what I found when I actually talk to people, and I say this respectfully, often I find that what they're really saying is, I don't like the God who is. It it ties into what, what Keller was saying, that if God is sovereign enough that you think he should take the blame then isn't it possible that he is transcendent enough that he might have a purpose that you can't understand? And just because you don't know the purpose, be careful of saying there is no possible purpose. It's like uh, this guy, Rodney Clapp, has an essay uh, called The Sin of Winnie the Pooh. It's an awesome essay, The Sin of Winnie the Pooh. And basically he says this, he, he, he describes the Winnie the Winnie the Pooh story and Winnie the Pooh basically one day hears a buzzing sound and he says to himself now the only reason for a buzzing sound that I know of is a bee and the only reason for a bee that I know of is to make honey and the only reason for honey that I know of is so I can eat it We fall into those sorts of things all the time To think that just because I can't imagine that the bee has a bigger purpose than just making honey for me to eat doesn't mean that it's true, right? I've known many people who said that the suffering they had seen made them not able to believe in God, but really it seems to me that they do believe in God. That's what they're so mad about. It's still a, a thing we have to wrestle with, but I think it helps... To name what is probably actually going on in a lot of cases we don't like the God who is and refuse to worship him because we feel he's a monster and it's not just people outside of the faith I think there are people who would call themselves Christians who if they're honest wrestle with that very thing C.S. Lewis wrestled with this very thing too uh, not before he became a Christian but after he was a Christian I don't know if you know the story. He never thought that he would marry, but very late in life, he fell in love. But actually, he married this atheistic Jewish um, poet, Joy Davidson, Davidman, Davidman. He married her and then fell in love, married her so she could stay in the country. And then they fell in love. But about the time they fell in love, she was stricken with cancer, and, and he writes about this in his book, A Grief Observed. He said, now that, sorry, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. He's wrestling with her, her cancer and her death. He says, the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God's really like. And I wonder if that resonates with you. If you fear, if you fear that the God who is is not the kind of God that we would like. So there are lots of other approaches to how to deal with suffering. Every great religion and philosophical system has to deal with the problem of evil. The Buddhist prescription is about detachment. But detachment from suffering inevitably detaches you from true love. C.S. Lewis talked about this as well. He talked about the only place that your heart can be safe from being broken is hell. If you love something, it makes you vulnerable. So if you detach from everything to avoid feeling pain, you inevitably detach from things that you would love. I've seen that in my own life in response to to deep tragedy, deep hurt, deep trauma, thinking that I could selectively shut off certain emotions and it doesn't really work that way. Tim Keller says this, unlike the concept of karma, Christianity teaches that suffering is often unfair, not merited by actions from a former life. Unlike Buddhism, Christianity teaches that suffering is a terrible reality, not an illusion to be transcended with Stoic detachment. Unlike ancient fatalism such as the Greek Stoics or other shame and honor cultures, Christianity finds nothing particularly noble about suffering, it should not be welcomed, it's an evil. Yet unlike secularism, Christianity teaches that suffering can be meaningful, that it can make you something great. So what does Christianity have to offer? I think this story in John 11 is one of the best places to see this. This is the passage that Tim Keller chose to preach in New York City the Sunday after 9-11. I believe this is the passage I talked about the Tuesday night after the Covenant shooting. The next night, right? Because the the shooting was on a Monday. How could I forget? Um, what, What do we see? It's an interesting story. It's an interesting story, and it raises a number of questions. The first is, why does Jesus wait? Why does Jesus wait to go see his friend? He hears that his friend is sick. Why does he wait? And then why does he respond to the same question from Mary and Martha? They say the exact same thing to him, yet he responds differently to them. They get different answers. Why? Let's dig into this. Why does Jesus wait? If you look at at the passage, you see that he says that this situation will lead to the Son of God, that's Jesus' title for himself, it will lead to the Son of Man, sorry, Son of Man being glorified. Though we're going to actually have to wait to the end of the story to see the fullness of what this means. But John tells us that Jesus does not delay because he's indifferent to pain and suffering. He says, Jesus loves Lazarus. And the sisters in verse three, they know that Jesus loves Lazarus. They say the one you love is sick. So he doesn't wait because he's indifferent to suffering. And I think that's very important for us to see because I think often we wrestle with God's seeming inaction. Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he take action? And if he does take action, why does he wait so freaking long so much of the time, right? He also doesn't wait because he's afraid of the Jewish leadership, though as the disciples understand, that's a legitimate concern. As a matter of fact, they're like, why would you go back into Judea? We go back into Judea, they're going to stone you. And Thomas basically is resigned to it. He says, well, guys, if he insists, Let's go with him to die. They think this is it, okay? But Jesus isn't afraid at all. He doesn't delay because he's trying to steal up his courage so he can go back into Judea. Not at all. What's helpful to understand, if you figure out the timing, by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. What does that mean? That means it took two days to get there, two days for the messenger. Even if Jesus had left the moment that he was told about Lazarus, Lazarus would have been dead when he got there. What that means is Jesus waits so that there will be no question that Lazarus is irreversibly dead. See, the Jews had this belief that the soul hovered over the body for three days. On the fourth day, it was over. There was no chance Of reversing this. Jesus deliberately waits so that when he goes back, everybody will say, there is not a chance in Hades that Lazarus is coming back. Lazarus would have been dead anyway, but Jesus says he's glad that he wasn't there so that it would result in his disciples believing. Why does he give different responses to Mary and Martha? Martha gets truth, and Mary gets tears. And I suspect most everybody in this room prefers one or the other when they're suffering. And I I I I suspect most of you like to offer comfort in one way or the other. But Jesus shows us that both are needed. He also shows us that he is a wonderful counselor who knows what is needed for each person at each time. But you have to have both of those tools in your toolbox. You actually have to have truth and tears. It's not just enough to have Jesus weep with you. You also need to know what's real and what's true and what's going to happen. But it's not enough just to know what's gonna happen. You also need to know that he cares, that he's been there, that he is a man acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. Tim Keller puts it this way, we will never be healed without both truth and tears. Truth alone says buck up, pull yourself together. Tears alone says I don't know why there's evil, perhaps there are no answers, but I'll weep with you in the midst of this evil and suffering. But for true healing, we need both, and in Jesus, we have both. John's gospel actually begins by saying, Jesus came from the Father, full of truth and grace. And the challenge in understanding who Jesus really is, is to not make him into our image, thinking that he's one or the other, because we really prefer him to be one or the other, but understanding that he is both full of grace and full of truth. But here's the key to this story. He does more than weep, and in his rage, that's right I said rage, we see what he came to do. It's beautiful to know that Jesus himself has wept in the face of death and brokenness. Jesus was more broken over the brokenness of this world than you and I can ever be, because he knew what it was supposed to be like, more than we can even imagine. It's beautiful to know that Jesus has wept in the face of death. It's life-giving to know that he does more than that. Now the translators struggle with this passage. They struggle with this passage. They're a little afraid to make Jesus one who rages. But the word there in verse 33, deeply moved in spirit, is a strong word. It's a word that's used actually pretty commonly outside of the New Testament. And it literally means to snort or bellow with anger like an animal. It's the the word you would use of a war horse who's pawing at the ground about to charge into battle. That's the word. And that's the word used twice in this passage about Jesus, which does raise the question, is your Jesus like that? Does your Jesus get mad about stuff? Does he rage? Jesus rages here. About the only translation that doesn't wimp out is the message by Eugene Peterson. I know some people don't like the message. I think at times it's really brilliant. Eugene Peterson translates John eleven thirty eight as quaking with rage. And that's what you need to see here about Jesus. Why is he angry? What is he weeping about? And it can't be just about Lazarus. It can't be, he knows he's about to raise him. He's known from the very beginning that he was gonna raise him from the dead. But look at the scene. He's got Mary and Martha with him, and who else? He's got all the Jews that have come around. Now, Wendy and I live, to, live next door to Kurdish folks, and there's a particular way that people from the Middle East um, come around one another in times of death. I remember when we first moved in, Wendy will remember this? um, I think it was the brother of the patriarch of that family died in a farming accident over in Iraq. And one of the sons who spoke better English came over and knocked on our door. We were new to the neighborhood. And he said, there are 5,000 Kurds in this area and there will be a representative from every family that will come by our house in the next few weeks. It's remarkable, that's what's going on here. All the Jews have come out, and they're all around weeping. Jesus is seeing the weeping of the world. He's not just seeing this one funeral that he's about to turn upside down. He's seeing all the funerals, all the brokenness. He's saying, if you will, death. Let's go. He's quaking with rage, and he is going to take on death itself. Because you know what? this is what seals his death warrant. And he wasn't stupid. He knew that. If his disciples thought he forgot, they reminded him, remember? If you go back to Judea, they're going to want to stone you. What do you think they're going to do when Jesus raises this guy from the dead, who's been dead for four days, with everybody around, He even prays out loud. His prayer is almost comical. You know, I know that you hear me. I'm just saying this out loud so that everybody else knows. Like he's so obviously doing this in a performative way so that we understand that he is doing this intentionally to seal his own death warrant. He's gonna do something that is going to be so threatening to the Jewish leadership that they're gonna have to take action. And John's Gospel says that is exactly what happened. He's signing his death warrant. He knows, as Tim Keller says, that to interrupt this funeral is to bring on his own. And he does it anyway. He does it anyway. Now notice who he doesn't get mad at. He does not get mad at the weeping people. He doesn't say, buck up. He doesn't say, dry your tears. He doesn't get mad at himself. He doesn't get mad at God. He knows that God did not create a world to die. But since sin has entered the world, those who love much must suffer much. Finally, let me just close this way. We must never talk about the issue of suffering without keeping Jesus at the center. And I mean that in two ways. The first is this. Our God has scars. Unlike any other God. Buddha looks at the world, doesn't even really look at the world. Buddha is always pictured with his eyes closed, smiling. Rising above it. And that might seem like a good option. But like I said, detachment from pain detaches you from love. Our God has strong has scars. Edward Shalito wrote this after World War I. I posted it in the Group Me, this poem, Jesus of the Scars. Just this, this last verse is so powerful. He says, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Now, I know there are people that say, how can God have wounds? Like, that's that's, like crazy. It, it, It seems to speak of weakness in God, and how can there be weakness in God? Actuality, friends, it speaks of what is so remarkable about God, that he would take on human flesh and die. And, second, when we think about suffering, the story is not finished. The story is not finished. We are in the middle of a story that is not yet concluded. And the Bible said, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard what is in store. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, um, Confronting Christianity, says this so beautifully. She says, in the early Genesis narrative... Adam and Eve knew God as creator and Lord, perhaps even as friend as they walk with him in the cool of the day. But Christians know Jesus far more intimately as savior, lover, husband, head, brother, fellow sufferer, and their resurrection and their life. The first humans could not have dreamed of this earth-shattering intimacy with God, it was an intimacy best glimpse in the experience of each other before they turned from their maker, but the lack of that intimacy with God himself explains the strange declaration that it was not good that the man should be alone. The original vision of humanity was very good, but it was not the best. The best from a biblical perspective was yet to come, and the way to get there would be through suffering. From the Christian perspective, there is not only hope for a better end, there is intimacy now with the one whose resurrected hands still bear the scars of the nails that pinned him to the cross. Suffering is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith. It is the thread which with Christ's name is stitched into our lives. And I think that the thing that helped me understand this was a poem by James Montgomery. James Montgomery is one of the only Christian songwriters and hymn writers I know who was thrown in jail twice for criticizing the government for policies that hurt the poor. We need more Christian songwriters like that. He was a Scottish Moravian, which is an odd combination. Um, But he wrote this poem on Jesus' prayers, and I remember this came to me, I found this in an old book, at a time when I was feeling the weight of something that a mentor had said to me. He said, Kevin, if you can't weep with those who weep, you may be a good teacher, but you'll never be a good pastor. And I was like, well, tell me how I can change. Like, that's fine, I don't disagree with that, but I don't know what to do about that. And I felt a lot of shame about that, that sort of shutting off my emotions. How do you just fix that? And this poem about Jesus' prayers, particularly the part about the Garden of Gethsemane, just rocks my world. Let me, let me read it to you and explain why. He's talking about Jesus in the garden where he's sweating. His sweat is like great drops of blood, the Bible says. And, and then Montgomery says this, here oft in spirit let me kneel, at basically there at the garden, share in the speechless griefs I see And while he felt what I should feel, feel all his power of love for me, break my hard heart and grace supply for him who dies for me to die. What is he saying? He felt what I should feel. The shame I feel not weeping over sin and brokenness like I should, Jesus did, and I actually get credit for what he felt. I don't have to be ashamed of not feeling. I actually have a doorway into understanding a little bit of what it felt like for Jesus to love us. What did it feel like for Jesus to love us to the very end? It felt like torturous death and hell. It felt like complete abandonment from his father. It wasn't the crown of thorns that made him cry out. It was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've only ever known perfect relationship with you, and now I can't see you. You've cut me off. And he had a choice, guys. He didn't have to go there. He didn't want to go there at one level. He said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cup of God's wrath. It's an image from the book of Isaiah, and it said that God had him drink it to the very dregs. Here's the thing. There are things in your life that are so painful that you would do anything to not go there again. And what I want you to understand is Jesus went there, and he went there willingly and intentionally. And those things that you're so afraid to feel that actually feel like a barrier to understanding the love of God are actually a doorway into understanding a little bit of what it felt like for him. And even beyond that, It takes a whole community to begin to understand what the love of Jesus really felt like. And every one of your stories of pain teaches us and helps us understand a little bit more of what Jesus' love felt like for him. That's how you enter into the love of God. That's what Rebecca means when she talks about suffering is not an embarrassment to Christianity, it actually is the thing that knits the gospel, and the image of Christ into our lives. And Jesus still has the scars. Isn't that remarkable? Like, in his perfect, glorified body, he still has wounds. That changes forever the way we think about suffering. That Jesus actually takes them on and continues to bear those marks. Let's pray together.